Well, good morning, Friends Church. It is so good to see all of you. Do me a favor here this morning. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 is where we are today. If you're following along in one of the Bibles in the seats, it's on page 613. In my Bible, it's on page 905, but I doubt that helps any of you. Daniel chapter 1 is where we are today. As Matthew said, we are uh, starting this brand new sermon series through the book of Daniel that I am very excited about. And what I want to do here today is I want to sort of get a lay of the land, okay? I want to read the first chapter of the book of Daniel, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see what we have here this morning. So we're in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to put the words on the screen as well. You can follow along with me. I'll start here in verse 1. And this is what we read. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3 now. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were from, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord my king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would, not, would, would then have my head because of you. Dan, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his servant, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about what the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's bow our heads now in a word of prayer. Father God, we just come before you, Lord, and uh, we are just grateful for this opportunity we have to gather together, Lord, for the worship that we just got to sing to you, and Father, for the opportunity that we now have just to learn from your word and uh, God, I just admit here my, this morning my uh, need and dependence upon you, Father. Um, I know, God, that at the end of the day, no one wants to hear from me. They want to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit and word. Uh, God, I pray that he, we who are gathered here would not just listen to what uh, you have to say, but, God, we would respond to it. And, Father, we just get a better picture of who you are and who you've called us to be as a result of this. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. 
Well, as I said, I'm um, really excited to begin this new sermon series in the book of Daniel and the next several weeks and even months that we're going to be spent going through this great book of the Bible. And uh, I just got to say, I, I do think that this decision to go through Daniel, I think it comes at a really good time because I think the book of Daniel speaks really well to all that is going on in our world right now and especially this really unique season that we are in in the history of the United States. Uh, one of the things I, I like to do from time to time is, is occasionally I'll listen to a sermon of a, of a pastor that I really admire on one of the texts that I'm going to preach on because it gives me some insights and it gives me some ideas. And I was listening to a pastor I really admire and respect. His name was Alistair Begg, and he was teaching on Daniel chapter 1. And in this particular sermon, he said something that really caught my attention. He said, and I wish I could reproduce his Scottish accent here, but I can't, so I'm not even going to try but he said, he said, you know, for the first time in the history of the United States, he said, I am beginning to sense that the tides are turning. For the first time in the history of the United States, I am beginning to sense that the tides are turning. And what he meant by that particular statement is not only does he observe, statistically speaking, that the Christian faith, the Christian religion is on the decline in the United States. And if you've been here before, you know I've shared some of those statistics with you before. But what he is observing is, is what may be called at times th this open hostility, this open antagonism that we Christians are experiencing from the world out there about our beliefs and about how we practice our faith. You know, it's, it's always been, uh, men and women, that there are a lot of people out there who don't believe what we believe, don't practice what we practice. But up until, you know, the last five or ten years or so, for the most part, they've kind of been content to just allow us to, to have our beliefs and to live out our faith. And for the most part, they've, they've kind of just left us alone. But what we're seeing now is this change and this shift. And, and as we are expressing our beliefs and as we are living out our faith, we are facing now this hostility. We are facing from circles this antagonism. And we are being called intolerant and narrow-minded and sometimes even hate-filled because of some of the beliefs that we have. And as Alistair said in this message, he said part of what that means is it's hard at times in our day and age, it's hard to be a Christian, and, and it's hard to live out our faith. And what I want to make known to all of you here this morning is that, you know, what we're experiencing right now is actually nothing new for God's people, okay? Throughout history, God's people have been in seasons like the season that we're in right now. In fact, throughout history, God's people have been in seasons even worse than what we're experiencing right now. And I don't think there is any book of the Bible that speaks better to what is going on right now than the book of Daniel. And, and honestly, there, I don't think there's any story in the book of Daniel that speaks better to what is going on than this story that we just read in Daniel chapter 1. At the heart of this particular story that we're looking at today is this stand. The stand that Daniel and his friends take against King Nebuchadnezzar and what might be called this, this brainwashing program, this indoctrination program that he is trying to subject them to. This remarkable decision that Daniel and his friends make not to compromise in their faith. But before we're able to really get to this stand and understand what's going on here, especially in this intro message, the first thing that we need to do is we need to sort of lay the groundwork for what we're seeing here. We need to understand a little bit of the, the sequence of events that led up to this, which means that we have to do a little bit of, of work in history. So are, are you all okay? Are you okay with a little bit of a history lesson here this morning at Friends Church? Yes? 
Okay, that was a pretty good response. The other service is not so great, but you give me confidence about the next couple of minutes, okay? So um, here's what we have to understand. The book of Daniel begins at a very specific moment in history. In fact, we're told in verse 1, it begins in the third year of the reign of, of, of the king of G Judah, uh, of, of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. And, and actually, we're able to date that with, with great specificity. Uh, the book of Daniel, the events in the book of Daniel, it begins in 605 B.C. It's, it begins 605 years before Christ. And in 605 B.C., the most powerful nation on this earth was the nation of Babylon. And, and Babylon was maybe one of the most powerful nations that had ever existed up until this time. And, and the king of Babylon was a king by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar, which means that Nebuchadnezzar was literally the most powerful, the most influential person on this earth at the time of the beginning of the book of Daniel. And we're told in verse 1 that, that one day, King Nebuchadnezzar, he decides to set his sights on the rather tiny and rather insignificant nation of Israel. And so he marches his troops, we're told, into Jerusalem, into the capital city of Israel. And we're told in verse 1 that they besiege it, they, they attack it, they assault it. In fact, we're told that they go into the temple of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and they, they ransack it. They steal some of the prized possessions of the temple. And then we're told a little bit later on in the book that to sort of add insult to injury, what they do is they actually take captive some of the Israelite people. And, and they force them out of Jerusalem. They force them out of Israel. And they make them really become prisoners of war and exiles in the land of Babylon some 500 miles away. Uh, it is no doubt the most devastating time in the history of the nation of Israel. In fact, it's really the end of the nation of Israel as we know it. Israel is never the same after this particular moment. And probably one of the saddest things about what is going on here are the religious implications of it. You see, at this time, it was believed that there wasn't just one God in the heavens. Uh, most people groups on this earth, they believed that there were multiple gods in the heaven. Each nation, in fact, each people group sort of had its own god or gods. And it was believed that these gods in the heaven, they were, they were constantly at war with each other. They were constantly duking it out for supremacy. And it was believed that what happened here on this earth was actually a direct reflection of what was going on in the heavens. And therefore, among most of the Babylonians at this time, probably all of them, in fact, the reason why Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, the reason why they had been able to be successful over the Israelites is because the god of Nebuchadnezzar, the gods of the Babylonian, uh, had just proven themselves to be stronger than the god of the Israelite people. And so this event was not just a humiliation for the Israelite people. This event was a humiliation for the god of the Israelite people, for the god of the Bible, the god that we believe in. Uh, according to most of the Babylonian people, God had just been knocked off of his throne. Or at least that's what they believed. The book of Daniel, however, tells us a different story. Look with me again at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1. It says the following, the author of Daniel, probably Daniel himself, writes this. He says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now let me read the first part of verse 2 again. If you are someone who likes to mark your Bibles, you may want to underline this phrase here. It says, And the Lord delivered, literally, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And no exaggeration, men and women, this is probably one of the most significant phrases in the entire book of Daniel. And the reason why is because what Daniel is telling us in this phrase is he's telling us what's really going on. Okay, he's telling us what's going on behind the scenes. And according to Daniel, there are not multiple gods in the heaven duking it out for supremacy. There is only one God. And it's the God of the Jewish people. It's the God of the Israelite people. And therefore, the reason why ba the Babylonians were just able to conquer the Israelite people is because, believe it or not, the God of the Israelite people actually willed it to happen. God allowed it to happen. The God of the Israelite people allowed his people to be conquered. Now, why would the God of the Israelite people allow his people to be conquered? Well, we'll find the answer to that question as we continue on in our study in Daniel in later weeks. But to sort of preview it, the, the reason why is because the Israelites had been disobedient to God. They had constantly broke God's laws. And God told them, if you continue to be disobedient, something like this is going to happen. But the Israelite people would not listen to God. And so God eventually followed through on his promise. And so what Daniel tells us here in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 is that contrary to appearances, God is still on his throne. God is still in charge. God is still in control of the circumstances here on this earth. And this is, this is really the fundamental teaching of the book of Daniel. You know, each book of the Bible, I think, really contributes something unique to our understanding of God and who God is. And what the book of Daniel contributes, I think, better than any other book of the Bible, is what theologians often refer to as the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And what that doctrine states is it's the doctrine of the complete and utter control that God has over all circumstances here on this earth. And if you've been at this church for a while, uh, one of the things you may know about me is that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is probably one of my favorite doctrines. And the reason why is because to me, I find it to be a very comforting doctrine. It's comforting to know that no matter how bad things out there get, and I watch the same news that you do, and at times it seems to be really bad, it's comforting to know that no matter how bad things out there get, our God is still in charge. Our God is still on his throne. That's a very comforting doctrine to me. But if I can say it, there is also a challenging aspect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And the challenging aspect to the doctrines of God's sovereignty is this. Listen, if God is always in charge, if God is always in control, then one of the things that that means is no matter how bad out there it gets, God still cares about how we live. God still cares about the choices that we make. There is no place on this earth where we are off the hook, so to speak, when it comes out to living the way that God wants us to live. And that's the truth that sort of drives us into the next part of this story. As I said, at the heart of this story is, is really this, this brainwashing process, this indoctrination process that has been implemented by King Nebuchadnezzar. Pick it up with me in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Now, what exactly is going on here? 
Well, as I said, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, one of the things that he did is he brought some of the Israelites into Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar did that, he did something that was actually really smart. He did something really shrewd. He made sure that among the Israelites who were brought to Babylon were actually some of the royal family of Israel, some of the future dukes and princes and, 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 and kings, if you will, of the, the nation of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to have them be immersed in the culture of the Babylonians, to really go through this brainwashing pro program where they would begin to look and act and think like Babylonian people. And the idea was that at the end of this brainwashing program, he would actually give them positions of prominence in his government, in his administration. And when you think about that, that's really smart. Because Nebuchadnezzar knows that if he's going to be a successful leader, he can't have the entire Israelite nation against him. He has to have at least some of the Israelites on his side. And he knows that if the average Israelite person can see a member of their royal family, not only serving in the government of Babylon, but actually beginning to look and act and think like a Babylonian, that can go a long way into winning the Israelite people over. So what Nebuchadnezzar does, we're told, is he turns to his chief official, a man with an unfortunate name by the name of Ashpenaz. No offense to any Ashpenazes in our congregation today. Uh, we were almost going to name our daughter Madison Ashpenaz, but we crossed it off the list at the last moment. But he turns to his official Ashpenaz, and he makes Ashpenaz the one who is really in charge of this indoctrination program. And ultimately, there are three components to this program. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar wants Ashpenaz to change the name of the Israelites in this program. They are to lose their strong Hebrew names, and they are to adopt Babylonian names instead. The second thing he wants them to do is he wants them to be immersed in the, the literature and the language of the Babylonians. They're to receive a Babylonian education. And then the third thing that he wants them to do is he wants them to eat only Babylonian food. And this may sound a little bit weird to us, but it's not when you think about it. You know, food is so much a part of a culture, right? So much to the degree that we often label food by the people group it came from. But we eat Chinese food and Mexican food and Italian food and so on. Well, these Israelites in this program, they are only going to eat Babylonian food. And not just like Babylonian food from the cafeteria, okay? They're going to eat, we're told, the king's food, the food from the king's table, the very food that the king himself would eat, the very best of the Babylonian food. And at the end of this ultimate three-year process, this three-year internship or an indoctrination program, then they would begin to look, act, and think like Babylonians, and they, then they would be able to enter into the, the administration of Nebuchadnezzar. And you can imagine, can't you? You can imagine the pressure that these Jewish people, these Israelite people in this program, the pressure they began to feel to conform to what was going on around them. You can imagine the pressure that they began to feel to begin to fully give in to this program and to become just like a Babylonian. And I honestly think to a certain extent, some of us can imagine the pressure. Because some of us feel that same pressure today. You know, one of the effects of living in a culture that is increasingly secular and less Christian is, is that the more that the culture around us becomes more secular, the more that our views as Christians are going to stand out. The more that our views are going to seem alien, the more that they're going to be different from the world around us. 
And therefore, as we hold to these views and as we hold to these values and as we try to live out our faith, what's going to happen? We're going to start to stand out more. People are going to start to look at us and notice that there is something different about us. And, And let's be honest, some of us don't like that. Some of us don't like to stand out. We like to sort of blend in with the crowd. And there is going to be this pressure that some of us feel to begin to compromise a little bit and to begin to adopt some of the views and values of the world around us so we don't stand out as much. And I know that many of you in this room, you have felt that pressure before. I have felt that pressure before. I was remembering this past week in in December of last year, I went out to, to dinner with some of my friends from college. And I have talked about my friends from college before, right? My heathen, pagan friends from college. (laughs) And as you can imagine, among my friends, I'm I'm about the only one who believes on a lot of issues the way that I believe. And at this particular dinner conversation, there was a heated uh, conversation that came up. And that is that, that the topic turned to the topic of marriage. And you can believe that I am the only one among my friends who believes what I believe about marriage, which is what I believe the Bible teaches, was that marriage is only between a a man and a woman. It's only between a husband and a wife. And so in the course of this conversation, of course, all the eyes got drawn to me because they wanted to know what Pastor Chris feels on this particular issue. And they wanted me to defend my view. And I'll tell you what, men and women, it was one of the few times in my life where I literally prayed that a sinkhole would develop right underneath my chair and I could just be just sucked right out of that conversation. I mean, I was praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? I, I wanted the rapture to happen in that moment. I mean, I felt the pressure. And, and ultimately, I held strong to what I believed. But that incident sort of shook me a little bit because it showed that when the pressure gets ratcheted up, There is this temptation that we have sometimes to say what we know is going to be life, to say what we know is going to be accepted, rather than what we know is true, rather than what we know the Bible says. And listen, right, I'm sort of a professional Christian, right? I get paid to do this Christianity thing. And if I feel the pressure, I can't imagine, those of you who have to do this Christianity thing for free, I can't imagine... (laughs) the pressure that you all feel on a regular basis. I mean, I imagine at times it's overwhelming. And it's in those times then that that we are so attracted to, to this resolve of Daniel and his friends in this particular passage. So we're told that that among the Israelites who are brought to this brainwashing, this indoctrination program, is Daniel and three of his friends, Hananiah, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these three friends are better known by the Babylonian names that they are given, Shagrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Usually pronounced Abednego, but it's actually Abednego. And we're told that they are enrolled in this brainwashing program. And immediately we're told they grow uncomfortable with a piece of it. And you see what that is in verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And so Daniel, and eventually we're told his three friends, immediately they don't like the fact that they have to eat the king's food. Now why would they not like the king's food? Well, the key is found in that word defile in verse 8. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave some very strict laws to the Jewish people about how food was supposed to be prepared. Jewish people today will sometimes follow the same laws. Food has to be kosher. It has to be prepared a certain way. And there is absolutely no way 
that the Babylonians were preparing the food the way that God said. And therefore, Daniel and his friends know that they, if they eat the food from the king's table, they're going to be violating one of God's laws. They're going to be disobeying God. And they don't want to do that. And so they make this resolution that for the next three years, they decide they are not going to eat any food from the king's table. Instead, they're going to subsist for the next three years off of nothing but vegetables and water. Now, I want you to think about that decision just for a moment, men and women. And how incredible it is. You know, Daniel and his three friends, the, the word that is used for them throughout this passage is that they are young men. They are youths. The, the word that is used is actually a word that indicates that they were probably teenagers, okay? They were 13, 14, 15, 16 years old as this story is going on. And here these teenagers have just been ripped from their homeland, right? Here they've been ripped probably from their families. Here they've been ripped from everything that is near and dear to them. And here they're forced in this, in this land 500 miles away. And they're forced to, to work for this wicked and evil government. Now, do you think anybody would blame Daniel and his friends if they had this attitude that said, hey, God has abandoned us. So who cares about his silly food laws, right? I mean, the, the situation around us has completely changed. Everything is different now. So who cares about what God said, wrote down hundreds of years earlier, right? We need to get with the times. I, I don't think very many people would blame Daniel if that is the attitude that they have. But what does Daniel know? He knows that God hasn't abandoned them in Babylon. He knows the truth of Daniel 1-2, right? That God is still in control, that God is still in charge. And one of the things that that means is that even in Babylon, even in Babylon, even in California, men and women, even in Orange County, even in Yorba Linda, God still cares about how we live. God still cares about the choices that we make. And so Daniel decides that rather than break one of God's laws, rather than go against God's word, that he's going to refuse every filet mignon that comes from the king's table. He's going to refuse every lobster bisque. And he's going to live off of nothing but carrots and broccolis and peas. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, I'm 35, 36 years old. I still can't stand vegetables. The only vegetables I like are potato chips and french fries, right? <laughs> and yet, in order to honor God, that's what Daniel and his friends are going to live off for the next three years. I mean, it's incredible. And it's actually made more incredible by, if you're paying attention as we read, that initially this decision is met with resistance. That actually the people who are in charge of Daniel say, no, you can't do this. But Daniel doesn't take no for an answer. And he persists. And he continues in it. And what happens? God honors him. God honors him. In fact, we're told that on this diet of vegetables, that, 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 that there's a sense that, that Daniel's friends actually begin to gain weight on this diet. That they look healthier than everybody else. And why is that? That's because they decided to honor God. God has now decided to honor them. And God has been with them. And God is sustaining them on this diet. And for three years, they live off of nothing but, but vegetables and water. And at the end of three years, we're told that they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. Who, by the way, had no idea about this plan to resist the food. But it doesn't matter. Because not only do they look healthier than everybody else, we're told that they're smarter than everybody else. They're wiser than everybody else. Verse 18, 
It says, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And actually, Daniel and his three friends, they become the most valued members of King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. These Jewish boys become the most valued members of this pagan Babylonian king's kingdom. And it's a remarkable little story. And I know that probably to many of us in this room, it's a very familiar story. In fact, if you grew up in the church, this is, a, this is a favorite story of Sunday school classes. I still remember today the flannel graphs of this particular story in my mind. But what I'm afraid sometimes is, is that as adults, that's sort of where we leave this particular story. That, that we leave it sort of for our kids. That some of you are thinking right now, oh, this is my, my junior higher needs to hear this story. My high school senior headed off to college, they, they need to hear this particular story. And you know what? They do. We need to teach this story to our kids. But, but I believe that we make a mistake, men and women, when we make this story just a story for our kids. Because it's also for us adults. Because it speaks to what is going on in our world right now. And it shows us how to navigate our faith in the midst of it. And the question that Daniel chapter 1 forces us to wrestle with in our day and age is, is, is simply, will we stand strong? Will we stand strong when things around us get tough, when things around us get difficult? If the world out there gets worse and worse, if it continues on in the direction it does, and standing strong brings with it consequences, will we still stand strong to God's word? Will we still stand strong to God's truth? Will we stand strong no matter what the consequences? You know, I, I know that it ends up okay for Daniel and his friends in this story. But understand that when Daniel and his friends made this decision to, to go through with this, to not eat the king's food, they didn't know how it would turn out. For all they knew, they would be labeled rebels. They would be labeled insurrectionists. They would be accused of stirring up dissension among the Israelite people. And they, they could have been executed for this decision. And I think Daniel and his friends know when they make that decision, that is what they are risking. But they still made it. Now, we're not living in an age like Daniel and his friends, and praise God for that. We're not yet at a place in America. We may never be, but we're not at a place in America where standing up for our faith will cause us to risk our lives or anything like that. But, as I said, increasingly we are facing ridicule. And as we live out our beliefs and as we live out what God has called us to live out, we will be uh, called names. We will be called intolerant. We will be called narrow-minded. We may at times even be called hateful. And I think what Daniel does, I hope what Daniel does, is it motivates us. It motivates us to say that, you know what, no matter what, I'm going to stand strong. That when our boss comes to us and he wants us to, you know, fudge the first quarter numbers up a little bit to make the quarter look a little bit better. Even if we know that most in the industry do it. Even if we know that, that our boss will be really upset at us if we don't do it. That we'll stand strong and refuse to do it because we know it's lying. And God wouldn't want us to do it. When someone at work or someone at school tells us just a really inappropriate joke. Even though we know it may create a really awkward moment not to laugh at it. 
We don't laugh at it because we know Jesus wouldn't want us to. When, when, when we're sitting at, at, at dinner or at lunch with our friends and, and the waiter puts the, the plate in front of us and we feel this conviction by God, and not out loud but silently and quietly, I, I need to pray over my meal. That, that Daniel would motivate us to do that, even if we know it will cause a glance or two in our direction. And that when someone asks us our views on marriage, even if we know that it may cause a strain in a relationship, even if it's a family member, that we would be motivated to follow Daniel's example and to stand strong. And, and I know that these are mundane examples, right? For the most part, I know that these are ordinary examples, but you know what? That's where faith is lived out, isn't it? Faith is lived out in the ordinary. Faith is lived out in the mundane. Faith is lived out in the, in the daily choices that we make in between the weekends here. You know, anybody can be a Christian in an environment like this. Anybody can it's easy to be a Christian when you're surrounded by other Christians. The true test of, test of faith is can we still be a Christian when we are literally the only one in the room? Can we still stand up for our faith when we are literally the only one who believes what we believe? And I just want to say, men and women, I do think that we're going to have to decide some of these things really quickly. Both what we believe, what we believe that the Bible teaches on some of these subjects, and we're going to have to decide to have this resolve, to stay committed no matter what. Because you know what? Gone are the days when our views will be in the majority. I believe, for example, that when it comes to America, the ship on marriage has sailed. America will never view about marriage the same way that we do. And so it is going to get tougher, save God bringing a revival to our land. And so we're going to have to decide quickly the commitment that we have and how willing we're, we're, we're willing to go, that will we stand strong no matter what the consequences. And I understand, men and women, I understand I may not be the best person to talk about all this with you. I mean, I do live my life, for the most part, surrounded by other Christians. And I don't know some of the pressures you go under, that you are going through. And that's why as I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of a Bible study that I attended not too long ago. And at this Bible study, there was a man from our congregation who shared his testimony. And what impressed me the most is his commitment to live out his faith in a place that's not always agreeable to it. And I thought it would really encourage us to hear just a, a little bit of his story here today. And so would you do me a favor and would you give just a very warm Friends Church welcome to Josh Hogan as he makes his way to the stage here. And Josh, just so you know, is a, is a firefighter for the Long Beach Fire Department. He's actually currently a fire captain. He's been a fireman for 17 years. In his current role, he is the coordinator of uh, the paramedic, paramedic coordinator, right, of Correct. your department. He's married to his wife, Carrie. He's actually a teacher here at Friends Christian. They have two kids together. And Josh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. As I said, uh, when I heard your story a few months ago, I was so impressed just by your commitment to live out your faith. And you know, I know every single one of us in this room, we respect firemen, we respect your profession, but I know sometimes it's not always agreeable to your Christian faith. So talk to me about some of the pressures that you feel on your job in regards to your faith. Sure. Yes, I do work in a, a noble profession, and I'm honored to serve alongside the men and women of our department. Uh, however, like you mentioned, it, it can be an environment that's not agreeable to my Christian faith. I work in an environment that's predominantly alpha males, and there tends to be a, an expectation that's created to be tough, to act tough, to work hard, earn your reputation, and then you'll be accepted into the fold. You'll be considered one of the guys. 
And so I do feel pressure at times um, to, to act and, and look and talk like the firefighters around me, so I'll be considered one of the guys. Um, I'm talking about things like swearing, gossiping, slandering others, uh, bad-mouthing others, I mean, being engaged in uh, conversations or, or behaviors that are inappropriate, and, and they don't align with the way that a, a believer should be acting and talking. Now, I don't think these things are specific only to the fire service. I think you'll find these uh, temptations or these urges to compromise uh, in many workplaces. But from my experience, uh, speaking specifically about the fire service, I do find it difficult to balance um, that uh, being a part of that brotherhood and at the same time not compromising my faith. So how have you, how have you resisted that pressure to compromise in your job? I think first and foremost, it's just constantly reminding myself of why I am there. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that God has placed me in my workplace for his purposes, and I firmly believe that um, my workplace is my mission field. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a captain, and as a Christian captain, I have to maintain my integrity. Uh, if I compromise my integrity, then I've lost my credibility. I've lost my ability to share my faith. I have a, a unique ability to kind of be a positive influence and a positive role model on my crew. Um, but to be that positive role model takes action, actions that match my words. My crew knows I'm a Christian. If my actions don't align with that, uh, then again, I've lost that credibility. So I, I don't engage in those things I mentioned, the, the swearing, the gossip, the slander, those inappropriate conversations, jokes like you mentioned. I, I just don't engage in that. And because of that, people notice there's something different about me. And when they notice there's something different, they ask why. And that's a good thing because um, that creates opportunity for me to share my faith. I've been able to share my faith with many of my coworkers, from new firefighters all the way up to the chief. Uh, you mentioned my current position. I'm the paramedic coordinator. One of my responsibilities is to guide new firefighters through six months of paramedic training. Um, and during that six months, I, I invest in that relationship. I build trust and respect with those people. And then at the end of the, uh, their training, at their graduation ceremony, I present them with a gift. I've started a tradition where I give them a gift. It's a pen that's engraved with the Bible verse, Colossians 3.23. We have that on the screen. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So you give that to everybody who graduates your program. I do. That's incredible. And then uh, it creates a one-on-one -on -one opportunity for me to share my faith with them, the hope I have in Jesus. And yeah. at the same time, I uh, kind of just use this verse to try and challenge them and encourage them to honor God through their work. That's awesome. You've, you've even felt God lay it on your heart to start a nonprofit. Talk just a little bit about that. I'd love to. Uh, well, my wife and I have been attending a life group here at church for several years, uh, and it's, it was great. It's been great, and it still is, um, meeting every other week in the comfort of a living room. Um, however, we just started feeling led to do more. We needed to get outside the walls of that home and be the hands and feet of Jesus in the community. Um, and what we, we kind of were trying to look for our niche or how we can contribute. And what birthed out of that was uh, a nonprofit that we started called Redemption Through Jesus, RTJ. Um, and what we do, we do monthly outreach projects. We focus on people groups. We have some uh, pictures of that on the screen, yeah. Uh, people less fortunate than us. So as you can see, uh, homeless population, um, foster kids, yeah. uh, women who have suffered from human trafficking, kids who have parents who are incarcerated, um, and we, what we do is we create bags, uh, we call them love packages, duffel bags, backpacks, that we fill with uh, items that would be useful for those people groups that we're uh, concentrating on. Uh, and, and we also put a Bible in every bag. And that's just kind of our tool to, to meet people, to uh, listen to their stories, to share Jesus with them, to pray over them, whatever the Holy Spirit leads in that moment. Um, it's just been an honor to serve God in that capacity. 
And uh, to date, we've delivered over 2,600 bags. 2,600 bags. That's Correct. incredible. So cool. Thank you. Wow. Well, Josh, it's just, it's so amazing to see just how God is using you and just your commitment to stay strong to your faith through all of that. Can we thank, thank Josh you. again for being here with us? Thank you. As we draw things to a close here, uh, th there is one thing I, I really don't want us to miss about Daniel's story. And I touched upon it earlier, and, and, and we also see it in Josh's story. And that is that Daniel and his friends chose to honor God. And because Daniel and his friends chose to honor God, what did God do? God honored them. God rewarded them. They, they were given, as I said, positions of prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And what I want to let you know, brothers and sisters, is that is what God always does. Without exception, that is what God always does. Whenever we choose to honor God, God always honors us. He always rewards us. He always honors us and rewards us in eternity. Anytime on this earth that you have stepped out for God and you have maintained your faith in any situation, but in, especially in a tough situation, you will receive a reward from God for that in eternity. The Bible is clear on that. So God always rewards us in eternity. But you know what? Sometimes, in fact, a lot of times I find God chooses to reward us for that on, on this earth. And he can bring us incredible success and bring us to positions of prominence. That's what you see with Daniel. That's what you see in Josh and his story as he honors God. God has brought him incredible success. And that's also probably what many of us were reminded of on Wednesday morning of this past week. On Wednesday morning of this past week, like many of you, I, uh, I woke up a little bit saddened to read the news that one of the greats, one of our giants of our faith, uh, Billy Graham, passed away. And, you know, talk about a man of uncompromising integrity. Talk about a man of just a commitment to his faith. Talk about a man who had this commitment to do what is right even when it was not popular. There's a story I read this week of Billy doing a crusade in Birmingham, Alabama in 1964. It's the height of the civil right tension. And when he was invited to, to Birmingham, the organizers of the crusade said, just so you know, we're going to do this crusade the way that we do everything in Birmingham, which means according to segregation law. Black people are going to sit in one section. White people are going to sit in another section. And Billy said, I won't come if that's what you do. He says, the, the audience has to be integrated or we won't come. And so the organizers of the crusade relented, and Billy ended up speaking to the largest integrated audience in the history of Birmingham, Alabama, up until that point. Now, Billy was not perfect. Billy made some mistakes, of course, like all of us. But by and large, Billy was a, a man committed to, to living out his faith no matter what the consequences. And look at what God did with him. I mean, he prayed with every single president since Harry Truman, since the 1940s. I mean, in many ways, he was a modern-day Daniel. But I know that what was most important to Billy, and I know that he received it, was on, when on Wednesday morning he stood before his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he had dedicated his life to, and he heard those words that all of us long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. And I know that is the cry of the hearts of every single one of us in this room who have given our life to I know it can be tough out there sometimes. As I said, I don't know the pressure that some of you face. 
but I know no matter what that our God is sovereign. And so this week, let's continue to stand strong. And who knows where God can lead us? Who knows what God can do with us? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father God, I, um, as I was talking, I just get the sense, Lord, that uh, there were some people in this room that felt just a pull from you, that there is an area in their life, Lord, where you are calling them to stand strong. And God, I pray that this week, Lord, that um, they would take that step, they would listen to you, and they would feel the strength, Father, that you provide in making that decision, God. I pray, Father, they would fight through any fear or anything like that, just knowing that you are on their side, God. And Father, I pray that they would see the reward of that. God, I pray that they would know no matter what, there is a reward waiting for them in heaven as a result of that. But God, I, I pray that you would give them a picture of a reward here on this earth, Father. And that you would supernaturally come into their situation. And God, that you would, um, you would just show them how pleased you are with the fact that, that we took this stand, Father. And God, I pray that as we look at the world around us, we, we would not be discouraged, Lord. Because we would remember the truth that you are in control. You are in charge no matter what, Father. And as we seek to live for you, God, that there are amazing things that you can do. So, Father, I pray for the series in Daniel as we begin it now, Lord. I pray that you would just continue to show us amazing, wonderful truths through this book, God. And I pray that as a church, we would be changed by it. And in turn, Father, as a community, uh, we would be changed by, the, by us going out and living out what your word says. And so we thank you so much, Lord. We love you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.